Jesus, uh, we come to you right now. We just confess our need for you in this life. Uh, the challenges and the storms that we face. Um, oftentimes disorient our sensibilities and leave us um, leaning into something. Uh, oftentimes the things that we lean into uh, are themselves incapable of providing security and stability for us. And yet, God, we thank you that you are here as a stabilizing, saving force and power and person. So, God, right now we ask you that you would just open our eyes to see your presence with us in the midst of whatever types of storms that we are currently facing or will, on a foreseeable horizon, be facing. Uh, so we just commit this morning in your hands and we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Uh, I'm going to start just with a thought that life is filled with storms. Uh, big E on the eye chart there. You're welcome. Physical, emotional, relational, financial, spiritual. All of these things are part of our life. Storms, oftentimes, they disorient us. They overwhelm us. They leave us uh, oftentimes utterly exhausted. It's really just in circumstances like these that Jesus walked on the water and into the storm and into the boat with his friends. Uh, we will also see, though we're not going to be spending time really specifically looking at this, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John each record this account for whatever reason Luke does not. Um, and each one of them have a little bit of a different take upon this exact same story. Um, the other two accounts uh, describe, you're probably familiar with the story of how Peter actually walks on water too. We're not going to be looking at that part today. So uh, my encouragement would be to read that in the other accounts. Um, they will be there. Um, some have oftentimes asked the question, like, why does the Bible contradict itself? And why do the Gospels contradict themselves? I would like to offer uh, an alternative way of viewing this. It's not, they don't contradict themselves. Um, they complement each other. Uh, they don't contradict one another. Um, and the difference is, so let's say, for example, if uh, an event happened in the world, and you had different news sources and journalists uh, chronicle or write down their testimony of what happened in the story. What you're going to get is not two entirely different accounts, for the most part. I mean, again, in some ways, you will, because that's the world that we live in, fake news. But um, for the most part, what you will find are similar accounts, uh, with certain details highlighted in one account and certain details omitted in another and highlighted in another. And that's exactly what you find in the Gospels, is you have really the, the main central figure being Jesus. And this is their story, their account of the life of Jesus. And so you will find throughout the variety of accounts, some elements and ideas about the life of Jesus that are highlighted in some accounts, Matthew, Mark, and then omitted in others like John, for example. And uh, this story is one of those really good case studies that kind of highlights or emphasizes this reality. But primarily, we're going to be mainly taking a look at the story of John's account, because that's the series that we're in right now, is the Gospel of John. I might be making some uh, honorable references to uh, Matthew and others, but this is the main primary account that we're going to be taking a look at. So what I want to do right now is I really just want to jump into the story. We're going to read just verse by verse through this story. I'll make some comments on it, and then we will kind of summarize with some final thoughts and ideas about storms. So verse uh, 16, in fact, I'm going to start at verse 15 because that gives us a little bit of a context of what's happening here. Verse 15, John chapter 6, I'm going to find myself... Where am I at? Sorry. 
is open to this. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him as king, Jesus then withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then we begin entering the story. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Uh, they got into a boat and they started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because strong wind, because the strong wind was blowing. Um, I'm going to show you a quick little map. Um, this is just a brief overview. If you're familiar with that particular region of the world, that's uh, obviously Israel. Um, and then the very center of that, or the center north, I should say, is the Sea of Galilee. You see the Mediterranean Sea over there. Um, and a bunch of other names that might not mean a whole lot to you, but these were cities. But the Sea of Galilee, you can see it. So I, I'm not sure how you think about the Sea of Galilee. It was a pretty significant, pretty large lake um, that it was to the north of the country. It was kind of more of viewed as the, the less um, or more agrarian, less educated, more less elite region of the people of Israel. And it was where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. In fact, most of his disciples that he called to follow him uh, lived in this particular region around the Sea of Galilee. Several years ago, we took a, a, a tour to Israel. We spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. It was absolutely, I don't know, for me personally, it was like breathtakingly beautiful, number one. Number two, it's just extremely peaceful. That's So whenever I think of the Sea of Galilee, I always think of just like just beauty and awesomeness. Um, but this story is not about beauty and awesomeness. It's about like absolute terror and fear, and we're going to die, and we're going down, and where's Jesus, and how are we going to get on the other side of this? So, uh, next slide, I'll show you another, like, little uh, uh, side view of this. So, this is another, like, little angle of seeing this uh, orange um, line in the middle of the lake right there. You kind of see it somewhat have suggested that this, this might have been the route that they were basically taking. So, the the city, the sea at its Widest was probably around four miles from top to bottom was upwards of 12 to maybe 14 miles. Again, it's hard to know exactly just based upon like sea levels and whatnot, but it's, it's pretty lengthy when you think about a body of water that significantly large. Um, and so that plays in the story. So these guys were basically trained and raised on this sea for the most part. And so they found themselves in the midst of a storm. Uh, and again, there's a couple words that were used here to describe the conditions. So again, verse 16, I, my, my mind and my eye goes to, it was evening. So obviously it was dark. Uh, skip on down to verse 17. It says, it was now dark. Uh, verse 18, the same, the sea became rough, uh, because the strong wind was blowing. So this is a, this is a terrifying circumstance. In fact, we know that life threatening storms oftentimes can arise on this particular region of the land geographically. It would just come out of nowhere. There would be no sign, no symbol, no storm clouds necessarily, and all of a sudden, uh, in a matter of moments, you can have this radical, like, peace and calm uh, transformed into just a complete upset chaos in just a matter of moments. Verse 19, uh, beginning part of that, says, and when they had rowed about three or four miles. Um, again, just to put a little bit of a context here, we didn't read the majority of this chapter, but if you recall, when we had gone through this several weeks ago... Um, Jesus had just performed another very uh, fascinating miracle. He feeds, uh, we're told, 5,000 men. So again, this is just most scholars believe that uh, it was uh, referencing men, though this was obviously also anticipating women and children. So most scholars believe that this could have been upwards of a crowd of 20,000 people that were following Jesus. Jesus, at this time, has literally reached 
uh, influencer status, right? He's, he's, he's gone viral. Everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody's following Jesus. Everybody's impressed by Jesus. Um, everybody is, is, is intrigued by Jesus. Uh, many others actually are threatened by Jesus and are looking for angles and ways to trap him in something that maybe he can do wrong uh, so that they can, uh, you know, cancel him and get rid of him. So uh, Jesus' disciples at this particular time had just witnessed uh, a massive miracle of the feeding of this 20,000 people. They were tired. They were emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausted at the end of the day. Just, just imagine working uh, an event with 20,000 people all day long, and all you get is just a few small loaves of bread and some pickle fish, and that's about it. And that's kind of where these guys were. They were tired. Now they get into a boat. Jesus tells them to go to the other side. Jesus says, I'm going to go off into a mountain to pray. And then it says, all of a sudden, that this massive storm had arisen. Oh, and also I didn't make mention of this, though. I did read it in verse 15. It says, uh, really, that there was this violent revolt that was simmering um, among many of these people. Because they watched what Jesus was doing, and they really thought in their own heart and mind that Jesus is the Messiah. So they were spot on in terms of their... Uh, theological uh, ideas and understanding and aspirations. However, uh, the content of, in terms of how they interpreted or understood the concept of a Messiah was completely off. They saw Jesus as basically a warrior king, and it says that they were forcing Jesus to become king, and then Jesus basically slipped out of the midst. So on this particular context, verse 19 again tells us that it was dark, stormy, they found themselves powerless, after having toiling in the middle of this lake um, for who knows how long, they were utterly, not just exhausted, but terrified exhausted. Verse 19b goes on to say, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Read, terrified. And they said to them, but he said to them, sorry, it is I, do not be afraid. They saw Jesus coming on the sea, uh, coming near the boat. They were obviously frightened, terrified. Uh, question in this context, where is Jesus in this context? Where is he? Walking on the water. I mean, this, I, there's, there's a lot of funny scenes that kind of come to my mind. Uh, if you guys have seen The Chosen, if you haven't seen The Chosen, you should watch The Chosen. It's awesome. This little scene right here is pretty awesome. Kind of just shows Jesus off in the distance, just kind of like walking on the water, and right? And then the disciples see Jesus. They're freaking out because they think it's a ghost. And Jesus is like, hey, what's up? <laughs> like, you're in the middle of the lake on a storm, and you're walking near them. I'm like, what's up? Like, how are things going tonight? You know? And it's like this obvious, like, image of comedic relief, right? And so here's Jesus walking them on the sea. On the sea. So you might say, well, that's odd. That doesn't very happen. You're right. That's exactly correct. That's why it's recorded. It was one of the circumstances. Like, we don't see this every day. People don't walk in water very often. And so Jesus did. How about we put this one in the book? So um, this was obviously, uh, this event was no doubt a miracle. Many uh, modern scholars have actually sought to dismiss this as sort of a contrived myth to bolster the claims of Jesus um, and of this particular region, kind of as a power claim. In other words, like our, our religion or our God is better than your God or our Messiah is better than your God because our Messiah walks on water and yours doesn't. And it's kind of a little bit of a, a weird religious flex, which is kind of silly and ridiculous. Like that, if you're using and resorting to uh, things like that as as a means to just kind of uh, as a power grab, silly. No, that's that's not what happened. This is a miracle. Jesus did this. It was seen. It was witnessed. It was observed, and so therefore it was written down as an event that actually happened that Jesus had done. Verse twenty one. It goes on to say. 
And when they were glad to take him into the boat, Jesus comes in, and immediately the boat was at land of which to which they were going. Um, Matthew gives us this little bit of a detail. Matthew chapter 14, verse 32, it says, when Jesus came into the ship, I love this, when Jesus came into the ship, the wind ceased. And those in the ship worshipped him, saying, you are the son of God. And this seems to be the main, you know, I'll, I'll get to a moment, like, like why did uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all add this particular story? Why particularly even John, for the context of the, what we're looking at, why was this included? Like, what was the point of that? And I think there's some important reasons we'll get to in just a moment here. But first, I want to just think a little bit about the idea of these storms. And I really want to think about four different things about storms uh, within the context of what we're looking at. So number one, we'll just go through these one by one. Storms will come. So number one, write these down. If you want, you can take notes. I can them up on the screen. Uh, number one, storms will come. Uh, Peter later would remind us in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, and my, my imagination would, would lead me to believe that Peter's probably thinking about this event, right? Peter's the central character in this story, though not in John's account, uh, Matthew's account, Mark's account, but not in this account for whatever reason. Who knows what type of weird rivalry was going on between John and Peter. It's just like, I might say this amazing miracle that Peter did as well. I'll just keep it focused on Jesus. Um, but whatever the case is, is that Peter, no doubt, is thinking back, I believe, uh, at the various storms that he's faced, maybe even this particular storm that he faced. Uh, and then he writes to a group of believers, is do not be surprised at the trial that has come to test you. Peter's writing this from a standpoint of wisdom, of experience. You know, that's one thing that storms will oftentimes do. Once you get through them, get on the other side of them, it becomes a means of wisdom that you now have an opportunity to deposit in the lives of other people. And that's what we see with Peter. So he's writing to this group of people that are suffering. They are going through trials. They are facing adversity and hardship and difficulty. And he's saying to them, listen, don't be shocked by this. It will happen. So number one, storms will come. And I was thinking about this. There's at least four different sources or ways in which storms oftentimes enter into our lives. Number one, uh, bad choices. Bad choices. You make a bad choice. It's not necessarily an evil choice. It's just a not a, not a wise choice. It might be based upon ignorance. Um, but it's just a maybe ill-informed choice. And that choice oftentimes unleashes chaos in your life. Something bad uh, follows or happens as storm-wise, storm-related, that just uh, creates this sense of uh, um, tempest and discomfort and unrest and unpredictability and chaos. And it, it came as a result of a bad choice. Number two, rebellious choices. This is, you know, you, you know God says, don't cross this line. You're like, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways because I know what's Right, I will follow this path because this is what my heart tells me to follow this path. That is a rebellious choice, and that rebellious choice. Again, look, God tells us things not because he's seeking to keep us from joy. Ironically, he wants to bring us into joy, and he tells us things so that the way we operate, the way we align our morality, the way that we align our lives would align with how he created all things. And so as we do that, we will enter into the life that he intends for us. But when we resist that, rebel against it, what ends up happening is we go against the way things were created, the way that God ordained them to be done. And as a result of that, I mean, again, this, this makes sense in our mechanistic world. I mean, you can take your car and be like, I don't like gasoline. It's bad for the planet. I'm going to pour milk in my gas tank. Well, you have the freedom to do that. Go for it. Your car will not drive very far if you do that. No matter how good your intentions are, it, it, it is a choice of rebellion 
you know, to do something that violates the way that thing was actually manufactured and made. And made. And it will actually have the exact opposite result than what you would hope to accomplish. And the same thing is true for the way that God created things. And so we can make rebellious choices, and this oftentimes unleashes storms in our life. Sometimes storms come as a result of no choice at all. You didn't do anything. It just happened. It just came out of nowhere. Totally unexpected, unplanned for. Storms can be hard for many of us because uh, storms throw our world, our life, into chaos. For some people that are overly controlling of their life circumstances, right? We call them, you know, neat freaks, whatever. Um, we call them highly or hyper-organized, right? The, the fact is, is when storms come, oftentimes they can have such a profound impact upon our soul because it throws us into chaos. I mean, think about this. Uh, are you the type of person that the smallest thing throws you into upheaval? There's a little bit of a change of a plan. And you're like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I can't believe this happened. Look, maybe this might be as a result of certain choices that we have, bad rebellious, or sometimes it's no choice at all, but it's just there. Now, how do we respond to it? Well, what we see oftentimes is that these types of storms can come as a result of no choices. And then lastly, sometimes storms come as a result of obedient choices. This is where it gets kind of shocking. Now, again, Matthew tells us this little detail in verse uh, 22, chapter 14. He says, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the boat and go over to the other side. Constrained, that's a pretty strong word, constrained. Did Jesus know the storm was coming? Of course he did. He knew what he was sending his disciples into. That might come as a surprise to some of you. Was Jesus sending them over into the grave and to die? No, it says pretty clearly here. Listen to it again. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. And Jesus constrained his disciples to get in the boat and to go over. Not, ready? Not under. (laughs) To go over to the other side. Not under to the other side. So sometimes storms come when we take an obedient step of faith to trust Jesus. Adversity comes, hardships strike, difficulties ensue, and we don't know exactly where to go. But the question is, what do we do when those storms strike? Storms might be any variety of things. It might be physical, sickness, chronic pain that's been impossible to diagnose, fatigue, you're not able to catch your breath. Um, you go from vacation to vacation, you get back from vacation, it's like, I'm just absolutely exhausted. I can't catch my breath. Emotional, as a result of maybe fears, anxieties, burn out, uh, exhaustion, trauma, rejection, suicidal ideation. These are all variety of emotional storms that we find ourselves or emotions that we find ourselves facing in the midst of some of these storms. It could be storms of relationships where we find ourselves in conflict with roommates, strife in the marriage, tension with your boss or coworker. It could be parental where you have a child that's wandered far from Jesus and making life choices that are ultimately gut-wrenching and terrifying and hard for you to watch and swallow. It might be financial. You've invested money and the bottom fell out. Markets are unstable. You thought that this particular thing was going to be bringing back some form of uh, security and help and abundance in the future for you, and yet it has not. It's done the exact opposite. It's just brought a lot of headache and strain and heartache and anxiety and pain. Or it could be vocational. You lost your job. You took a pay cut. Things that you thought were going to pan out. Maybe you worked really hard to get a particular raise, and you didn't. Somebody else got the raise instead of you. Uh, These are all types of storms we oftentimes find ourselves facing in the middle of. The second thing I want for us to think about with regard to storms is storms oftentimes take us off our previous course. Again, we see the story. 
that these disciples enter into the boat and they think they're going to one particular side and they are obviously being pushed. Strong winds are coming against them and taking them into another pathway that's entirely out of what their purview was. Um, sometimes God allows these types of things as a, as a way of redirecting uh, the course of our lives. Um, and that's what storms do. They, 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 they cause these disruptions in our lives. Um, but, again, I think the big idea that this story is trying to convey to us is that even in the midst of the radical chaos that these storms might bring about, God is still in charge and in control over these massively large circumstances that we feel powerless as a result of. Um, so as a result of these things taking us off course, it could be something like I was supposed to be married and have kids by now at this age and stage in my life. But the unexpected breakup or storm came. We were supposed to be living peaceably in our house, and yet the unexpected eviction notice struck. My marriage was supposed to be life-giving, but instead it came about as a result of uh, just the betrayal literally upended everything and brought incredible pain and anguish. Uh, we were supposed to be friends for so many years, but then that particular person or those people started ghosting me and wouldn't return my tax. Or when they would return them, they were heartbreaking, heartache, caused pain and difficulty and hardship. Uh, I was supposed to be healthy, eating well, exercising regularly, feeling great. And then the next day, I found myself in the ER. Uh, we find you had money that was in savings, things that you thought you were doing a really good job and saving your money. And then all of a sudden, the next day, your car breaks down. And now that entire amount of savings that you had is gone, wiped out. Uh, storms uh, oftentimes take us off our one particular path and send us into another path. And what we see here, obviously, with the outcome of this particular storm is that Jesus had his hand on these guys' lives entirely, completely. The third thing I noticed is that these storms reveal our powerlessness, uh, what I like to think about, otherwise known as our humanity, <laughs> right? Because that's kind of the same idea, is when we find ourselves in the midst of these types of circumstances, we begin to realize that, I, I mean, have you ever been swept up in something that you literally are powerless over? I think it's one of the reasons just to, you know, some of you probably get tired of this, but sorry, I'm doing that, sorry. The analogy of surfing, right? There's something about surfing. That's that's profound. Like what what a surfer does. Let me break this down for you. Is that a surfer actually stands on a board on on a wave on a swell, and this swell is generated thousands of miles offshore from a storm. Did you know that from a storm somewhere very far away, but that creates waves that travel thousands of miles through the ocean, and then when it gets to a beach, it, it jacks up, and it becomes an actual wave. And what a surfer does, they paddle into it or get towed into it, and now they're actually riding this, this raw power. Now, small waves don't have the same impact as very large waves, but if you've ever been out surfing on a very, very large day, one thing you realize very quickly, you have absolutely no power whatsoever. Nothing. It's absolutely terrifying. Your heart is beating out of your chest. You can't catch your breath. You're literally living off of adrenaline and fear in this rush. If you fall, you get tumbled underwater for who knows how long, maybe 30 seconds up to 90 seconds. You don't know what ends up. You're being tossed. Think about being in a laundry machine, and you're just upside down. Your feet are this way, and you're 
head is down there somewhere. You don't know where their board's at. You don't know if you're going to get hit. You don't know if there's a rock bottom. You don't know if your head's going to hit something. So you're ducking and covering and protecting. You're literally at the mercy of this swell. Power. Raw power. It's terrifying. And that's what was going on with these guys, is that in the midst of the storm, even though these were trained professional fishermen that literally grew up on this lake, they knew this lake very, very well. They found themselves in this particular context and situation where they found themselves completely powerless. They were doing everything that they could, but even in the midst of all that they could do, they still found themselves facing this chaos and absolutely terrorized. I like to think of it this way, is that this is a God-sized problem, and they were just merely human. And this is one of the things that in these moments, they're super sobering. But what they will do is they will reveal to you that you are merely human and not God. This might come as a shock, but this is an extremely freeing reality for us. When we begin to realize, I'm just human. I'm not God. Gods are responsible for carrying everything, working every detail out, organizing and controlling every little plan. I'm just a human. I can't. I try. I fail. I do my best. But it's oftentimes not enough. And storms have this propensity to accelerate the, the, the futility that oftentimes we are grasping at. And it reminds us of our state of being human. I recently read a book this past couple of weeks. Uh, it was by a transgendered female by the name of Maritine Rothblatt. And she is the founder of Sirius Satellite Radio. Fascinating story. Um, this book is called Virtually Human. And it's really all about what's known as transhumanism. This is the next wave of movement on our horizon, by the way, in case you don't know this, or if you're unfamiliar with this word, become familiar with it because it is the future of what's happening in our world today, at least in the West. I like to think of it this way. It's a techno-philosophical movement seeking to harness technology to transcend physically frail human beings and their limitations. Uh, to put it into another word, it's a way of basically saying, with the right technology, right abilities, amount of means, and resources available, we can literally change anything. You're female living in a male body, we can change that. Or at least you think you are, we can change that. With the right operations, with the right transformations, with the right drugs, right applications, we can change that. The idea of basically saying, uh, there's a phrase that has been coined, the idea of mind cloning, of taking how you think, who you are, how you understand things, how you vote. So I'm, they're going to freak some of you out, but just hold, hold on. This is going to be a nuclear meltdown for some of your minds. Um, all of us are digitally connected, all of us. That means that we do, you know, Amazon searches, you're leaving comments on social media, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, whatever. You're doing likes and dislikes and saying things. All of that is being recorded. This, might, this is not conspiracy, but it's fact. All of that is being recorded. You're welcome. Um, all of that is going somewhere. And all of that says something about you. There's a phrase for that. It's described as mind cloning. It's, it's who you are virtually. 
and, and the belief, the hope, at least, for some of these people within this particular sphere, this world, is that if we can take that mind clone of you and put it somewhere off up in the cloud and wait, toor, wait for another substrate. So they use the word substrate. Like your physical body right now is a substrate. We, we all know the physical makeup of our bodies will break down and die one day. But the hope is, is that we can create a substrate that will never die and that can self-regenerate and will live forever. So we can take your mind clone that's up in the cloud and put it and match it with a new substrate. And you as a human being will be able to live on forever in a different substrate. It's crazy, but it's the reality. But I want to suggest to you the big aim behind it is to look at this world that's filled with suffering and say, we think we can be God. We think we can ascend to a level where even death itself is powerless over us. We can transcend death itself. We can transcend viruses and gender and physical limitations. We can transcend all of these things with the right abilities. Do you even know that they also believe that they can transcend various pathologies? and violence, and hatred, and bigotry with the right amount of drugs. In fact, there have been movements throughout the past 50 to 100 years that have actually sought to apply certain medical procedures or even implants into the brain to change your behavior. Again, all of these are just simply attempts to say, what storms as humans do we face that are oftentimes the ones that most threaten to take us down, and how can we overcome those storms? It's an attempt to somehow say, let's be God. Now, some of this is not necessarily bad. I mean, in a sense where we want to create good, you know, means to help prolong life. That's not not necessarily bad. I want to be really clear on this. But I think the ethos behind it, the foundational concept that oftentimes drives much of this, is an attempt to deny our frailty as human beings and say that, you know what, maybe with the right processes and equations and algorithms and technologies and money, we can actually transcend to become gods ourselves and have the power in our hands to control our own fate, our own futures. And what storms do is they have this ability. By the way, did you know that World War II prior to that, uh, Nazi Germany was the most advanced nation on planet Earth? Did you know that? I mean, I'm talking, if you, if you like Leica cameras or Volkswagens, all of these actually came out of Germany. If you like certain vaccines and things of that nature that were like radical medical advances, all of this came from Germany as a means of like, we are living in the techno, most technologically advanced nation in the world. However, the breakdown is that we're humans. And when certain storms come, it reveals to us we will fall down. We will break. And therefore, what we need is to not live in denial of storms or somehow think that we as gods can overcome storms, but for us to acknowledge the fact that we are human beings and we deeply, desperately need a savior in the midst of these storms. So oftentimes what we do is we end up praying that God would take us out of these storms. And God says, no, I will be with you in those storms. These storms are there, and they will be challenging and hard for you, but I will be with you in the midst of these storms. And then lastly, I want to finish with this final one, is that Jesus ultimately, to me, I think is the main point where I think why John writes this particular story or pericope of the life of Jesus. Jesus is greater than the storm, or I like have written down in my parentheses here on my notes. He's greater than the chaos. 
This seems to be the main, most important thing in which why John tells us this story. Now, uh, quick little history. Uh, the idea of water in the body of water throughout the Jewish literature oftentimes is viewed as a source of chaos. So the great sea or the great ocean, if you even read about in the book of Revelation, like out of the great sea comes Babylon the Great. And this is kind of a metaphorical imagery to describe that the, the ocean or the sea was kind of this metaphorical picture of chaos. And uh, Jews were actually not, or uh, Hebrews and uh, Israelites were not necessarily seafaring people. Like they, yes, they went out on the Sea of Galilee. Yes, they fished there. But they weren't necessarily like creating big fleets of ships and going to visit other areas. So for the most part, they viewed the sea with this kind of sense of like, oh, the sea, the ocean. That's the, that's the place of chaos. That's the grave. That's the place of darkness. Avoid it. And yet, what's viewed with regard to that is when John tells us this story that Jesus is seen walking on the water, not below the water. It's another way in which John is very clearly saying that he is so great. He is truly the creator God that walks upon the chaos and brings order out of this chaos. One of the things that Jesus says oftentimes, he says, do not be afraid. He says this to the disciples, verse 20. Because he knows one of the most common responses to pain and hardship and trials and storms is this degree of anxiety and fear. It's one of the most repeated uh, statements throughout the Bible. In fact, when I was doing some research on this, I, I think there was a book that was written or someone had said, well, there's 365 verses that identify, you know, don't, don't be afraid. And that's actually been proven to be kind of a weird myth that maybe someone started just to sell a book. But the point of the matter is, is that it, it does appear a lot, the idea of do not be afraid, the, the, the command from God, don't be afraid, do not fear, because God knows that this is a constant ongoing fear and response that we oftentimes have. And his way is to say, I will be with you in the midst of this storm. Don't be afraid. Look to me. I'll carry you through this. And to the degree that we know this, it brings us into a place of peace and rest. And at the same time, I think we see Jesus ultimately living this out as himself, the example of it all. I mean, when we think about the cross, the greatest chaos on planet Earth is the cross, crucifixion. Jesus enters into that storm. For what reason? To save you. To rescue you. He knows. That, I mean, look, there's, there's no... This is why Christianity, at its very core, is not just simply this fundamental religion that makes certain power claims and has done bad things in the name of God and so on and so forth. At its very fundamental core is this beautiful story of a God that loves you, is for you, that knows the pain you go through, that knows the storms you suffer, that knows the challenges that oftentimes are pushing back upon you. And he says, I love you. I'm with you so much. I will enter into the storm with you to rescue you. That's what we would call the incarnation, God becoming man to rescue us from our demise. This is what makes the gospel, the good news, so beautiful. And I want to finish with just some very practical things to consider. So when fear and anxiety come as a result of these various storms, these are just a couple of different practices that I found that not only repeat over and over again throughout biblical stories of people that have been faithful to God, but they're also things that I've even personally just found in my own life that are extremely helpful. Number one, 
Get alone and pray. Get alone and pray. We see that Jesus actually did this. Jesus found himself in the midst of this context where he knew what everybody else wanted from him, but he needed to hear what the Father wanted. He knew that all these people were like, we want you to become king. You made amazing food. We want, we demand you, Jesus, be our warrior king. Jesus is like, okay, I know what you guys want now. I need to go seek what the Father wants for me. And by knowing what God wants, this actually frees you, frees you from every other demand that people have on you. So guess what? You, you, you get to boldly, courageously, lovingly use the word no. Because God's calling me to do something and I need to be obedient to what he's called me to do. And it might ruffle feathers. It might be hard. It might be difficult. But it frees you. So get alone, number one, to pray. Secondly, read scripture. Like, read scripture or listen to scripture. You know, if you haven't on audio, if you have the version app, you can listen to it audibly. Uh, but the big idea is get scripture into your system. Become familiar with it. Become familiar with the stories of what scripture teaches. Uh, this is the third one. It's free. But honestly, take a nap. Like, literally, take a nap. I, I, I'm not joking. I do this, and it's sometimes I find myself just absolutely in a, in, a, in a state of anxiety and utter despair. I'm being really honest and raw with you. And I just take a nap. Because I don't know, part of it is, like, I don't really know what else to do. I really don't want to talk to anybody at this particular moment. And other things are just not really coming easy for me. So I just will stop, and I will take a nap. And sometimes I just let my body sleep as long as it needs to get some rest. Sometimes it's physical. And the physical carries over into the spiritual. And that spiritual carries over into the emotional. And it creates this compound mess that is life. Fourth, obey what God says. And this is where maybe you need to get honest and humble before God and say, God, God, what have you asked me to do? Some of us are like, I haven't heard from God recently. And the question is, I would gently push back on it. Is, has God ever showed you something that he wants you to do? And you have, you're like, well, yeah, kind of. Then the question is, have you followed through that? Have you obeyed that? Like, no. So it's not so much an issue of like, you don't know what God wants you to do. It's that you don't like what God asks you to do. And that's a problem. That's a problem of the heart. And we oftentimes are like picking and choosing, cherry picking. Like, I want to do what God tells me to do. As long as it synchronizes and goes along with my sensibilities, like, Look, at the end of the day, that is basically an attempt to find a God that will simply affirm you as a person, which is another way of just saying, I want to be God, I want to play God, and I'll let God be my servant. And you're wondering why the storms keep pounding, and it's painful, because maybe somewhere within the makeup of all this, God is saying, just obey me, walk in my way, bring me into the boat, Bring me to the boat. I will guide you. I'll help you. And lastly, ask others to pray for you. And then kind of in connection with that, be in regular fellowship. Uh, some of you might not know that we actually meet every single week on Sunday morning for church. Every single week. It's an event we put on every single week. It's awesome. We worship. We study the Word of God. We pray for one another. Some of you are like, oh, man, I've only been here like once every eight weeks. Like, I want to invite you to maybe reconfigure your life and say, I'm going to be here every week because it happens every single week. And sometimes when the gaps get too long in between where you have not been on a regular cadence, it's easy to forget. And in the midst of that forgetfulness, we find ourselves being overwhelmed and overcome by the storms again. And we find ourselves 
being moving from one haggard state to another haggard state to another haggard state, as opposed to one victorious state to one haggard state slash victorious state to a Ash, half victorious state to being to pray for someone else who's in a haggard state so they can enter into a victorious state. And I'm still not quite yet into a victorious state, but I prayed for someone so they would be in a victorious state. And you find yourself in a place where you're being used by Jesus. And then God gives you grace to carry on. And so I think sometimes inviting people to pray for you can be a really crucial step. It's humbling because none of us want to really admit Sometimes the storms that we find ourselves going through against whether or not they are self-caused or rebelliously caused or just circumstantially caused or even sometimes caused by just our stepping out in faith to follow Jesus. And as a result, we are trying to make sense of these circumstances. Again, it doesn't really matter the source of them per se, but it does matter that God cares about us in the midst of those things. And he invites us to invite others into our lives so that God can help us through the midst of these things. So in closing, I'm going to have Dan come on up, and we're going to just close another final song. But what I want to do right now is I want to invite you all to just stand. And if you are here and you need prayer for anything, like, I seriously, like, I, I want to pray for you. I want to have others pray for you. We will have some others come to the front and be available to just pray for you. So as we sing, if you need prayer, just make your way to the front. I'll be in the front right here. would love to pray for you. Or even after the service is over, we'll be around to pray for you. Just ask God to help you in the midst of whatever storm you find yourself in the midst of. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And let me just pray over us right now. And then let's just sing once again. Jesus, we, we come to you. We need you. God, you know the circumstances that each one of us find ourselves in the midst of. And God, regardless of what the cause of said storm is, the emotional response is oftentimes the same. Fear and anxiety. And so Jesus, right now we come to you and we ask for your help to empower us, to enable us, to strengthen us to see you, Jesus, in the midst of our storm, to to invite you into our boat, our vessel, and to trust you whatever may come.